1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood.
3: The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just
0: perform.
2: Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast.
3: I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we are about to spend two episodes talking about the history and the marginalization of and the contemporary landscape for... Women in advertising.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Kristen and I, if you've listened to the podcast at all, ever, have covered a lot of topics in the past related to how women are portrayed in the actual advertisements. Uh, we've talked about photoshopping. We've talked about body image. We've talked about really just traditional notions of femininity and gender roles as they are presented through the lens of advertising and marketing. But we have not yet talked about actual female advertisers and copywriters and designers yet at all. So we, we should probably do that. And uh, two of the things that I found most fascinating in doing this research, Kristen, that I was not aware of before were, A, how intimately sort of connected women were to the birth of advertising as an industry um And how so many of them quickly rose to the highest ranks of the advertising industry when it was brand new. But B, I hope I'm on B and not 2, but B, uh 2B, B2, uh, of how women played this role in advertising of essentially helping to market that traditional femininity and gender norms to other women. That was big business for women in advertising was being the voice and perspective of women in general.
3: Yeah, I mean, being the Peggy Olson of the office, um, and speaking of Peggy Olson and Mad Men, It seems like we haven't really paid much attention to the history of women in advertising until that show became such a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. And uh, while it does a decent job of accurately portraying what life would have been like for a woman and a copywriter in an agency in the 1960s, it was a very different place when advertising first began developing in more of the late 19th century. And yeah, like you said, there's this unfortunate irony that you quickly run into when it comes to women in the ad industry, which is that the the asset that made us so successful also erected. A glass ceiling and really reinforced institutionalized sexism that is still rampant today, which we're going to cover more in our next episode. And it's no surprise that feminists talk about advertising a lot, because that's where a lot of these troublesome images and stereotypes of women's roles um, historically and still today reside. But what. I didn't realize so much that uh Julia Savolka notes in her book Ad Women how they impact what we need, want and buy is that quote the history of advertising is deeply entwined with feminism.
2: Yeah, advertising in a, <laughs> as well as feminism had three waves three early waves as it developed. So its first wave, as Kristen said, is in the late 19th century, alongside uh, the Industrial Revolution, the emergence of the modern consumer economy, and alongside the suffrage movement Itself. So all of a sudden you've got, you know, products that are ready-made. It's You don't have to be making everything yourself. You've got people, men and women and children, going to work in factories with their tiny hands. Um And wrapped up in all of this is women fighting for the right to vote to become full citizens. And so it's kind of not a coincidence then. You know, we mentioned that women have been involved in advertising since the get-go. It's not a coincidence then that many of those first successful ad ladies were feminists.
3: And then if you look at second wave feminism, uh, women are really championing the right to pursue professional careers and achieve personal success. And you see a similar trend in advertising as well in the ways that women are being represented, not just at home anymore, but also, hey, baby, look, you've come a long way. So light up that Virginia Slim. Here's your independence with a side of lung cancer. <laughs> And arguably, third-wave feminism's relationship to advertising is pushing for it to reflect the lived realities of being women.
2: Yeah. And all of this, as we move through time, more women are entering the workplace. More women are entering different male-dominated industries and fields. But as we'll get into through this episode and into the next, uh, women haven't quite shattered the glass ceilings uh, of the advertising industry no matter their early involvement.
3: And I gotta say white men have done a tip-top job of gatekeeping within the industry because... You know, diversity in or the lack thereof in the the ad business is not just something that applies to women, mm-hmm. but people of color as well. Oh, for sure. So with all of this in the back of our minds, the way this part one is going to be structured is breaking it down into three major themes in that earlier history of women and advertising. So theme one, we have to look at just the basic feminization of consumption. Or in other words, how ladies be shopping came to be <laughs> because, you know, shopping outside your home at some point was a new behavior. And mm-hmm. even shopping had to be sold and advertisers sold it as a lady thing. Um So let's travel back to the 1770s.
0: Uh, Do we
2: have to? It's it's a great place to be, um, if if you are a white man.
3: Yeah, ter- probably a terrible place to get your period.
2: Oh yeah, get your period or just you know
3: a great a great time if you love independence and industrialization.
2: Well, that's right because we see in Britain the dawn of the industrial revolution. It would take about another hundred years for it to fully come into vogue. Slash change the world in America because we were, we were a tad more rural. Uh, a lot, a lot more farms and space. Things were a lot more spread out over here on this side of the pond. So we just got things a little slower.
3: But once steam power factories and railroads arrive, the industrial revolution takes off. And for the very first time, things start costing less to buy pre-manufactured than to DIY. Well,
2: plus you have all sorts of variety now, too. So your bonnet didn't just have to be white. You could buy, like, a
3: purple bonnet or a blue bonnet. A polka-dotted bonnet.
2: Maybe even a polka-dotted bonnet.
3: So leading up to the Civil War, we also have a media boom. This is part of technological advances taking place that, of course, would greatly impact and facilitate, really, the advertising industry. So you have the emergence of daily, weekly and monthly papers and magazines, as well as Women's magazines. In uh, the premier women's magazines of the day were Godey's Ladies' Book, which was the magazine. Then you had the Ladies' Home Journal, of course, because how else are you going to learn how to bake that apple crumble? <laughs> Sounds delicious. Then in the uh, you got to get that L.H.J. script. And then you also have Peterson's magazine which when I first read that Caroline it reminded me of uh Jay Peterson on Seinfeld Oh it's Jay Peterman. Pa- Jay Peterman, so close. <laughs> Peterman Peterson. Yeah. Well and then yeah with with all all of the fancy descriptions of things. Yes his uh, his outdoor expensive khakis. Yeah. But I, I think Peterson's was a bit different because they probably did not want women going outdoors. Oh, no. Too much. No,
0: no, no, no. no women. women had
3: to learn how to stay at home. Yes. Better. Yes. More. Uh, and if you did go outside, don't move too quickly. Yeah. You know, stay close and walk slowly. <laughs> so with that, in the 1850s, you start getting the earliest ad departments and agencies beginning to form.
2: Yeah, because I mean, what goes in all of these new
3: daily, weekly and monthly papers and ladies mags? advertisement. Yeah, because publishers have to make money somehow, and that somehow is advertising.
2: Yeah. And so uh, by 1863, of course, we have the introduction of common currency, which definitely helped things, helped people shop more effectively. We also see all of those new ready-made goods requiring branding and merchandising, trademarking, positioning in the market, all these things. Because if I make uh, oatmeal and and you make oatmeal oh but it's basically like from the same oats how are we going to how are people going to know that our oats are different oats even though they're not different oats it's i might put a quaker man on mine and you might
3: put a quaker gal yeah ms quaker (laughs) Oats. (laughs) thank you very much ms period she can't vote but she'll fill you up in the morning Uh, well that's good and as the manufacturing industry develops, you know, you have all of these mail order catalogs, which then leads to brick-and-mortar stores and the retail industry boom with early stores like Woolworths, Five and Dime, A&P Grocery. Uh, don't forget Piggly Wiggly. Piggly Wiggly was an original and also... JCPenney. So we have these places outside of our homes where we can now go and buy stuff. We don't just have to flip through the Sears catalog, place our orders and, and wait. And wait.
2: Well, that is something that was definitely something that people in the rural areas of America still definitely relied on. And it was something that boomed uh, similarly in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. It's like, oh, well, OK, I may not be able to walk into a JCPenney when I'm out here on the frontier, but I can get a fancy catalog. I just imagine it's like me when I I get the IKEA catalog, which is always an exciting day. And I always set aside like 45 minutes to sit down and flip through the IKEA catalog. I
3: love that. Um, gotta tell you, my favorite catalog that my husband and I did not subscribe to is Costco Connection. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're 30 when suddenly a Costco connection ends up in your mailbox. Hashtag this is 30. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Is it is it taped together with a uh, an AARP catalog? God, it might as well be. I feel like that was just right around the corner. Um but I was delighted to learn that yeah, there's a whole lifestyle magazine devoted to Costco because it, really once you start going to Costco, it does become a way of life, Caroline. Oh dude, I know. My boyfriend just re-upped our Costco membership. Whew. And
2: uh so does the catalog just show people living the life of a Costco member? Are they like enjoying the giant thing of
3: Cheetos? Yeah, I mean it's just Kirkland brand shirts and uh, piles of canned goods for days. Can I jump into a swimming pool
2: in this catalog full of, of Charmin Ultra Strong toilet paper? You know what? In the Costco connection, you can. Anything can happen.
3: <laughs> Anything is possible.
2: Anywho. Um, well, you also have to keep in mind the, the context of the time. I'm, I'm sorry if that was jarring. Going from like a mental image of me in a pool of toilet paper, unused, unwrapped, wrapped, Sorry, to the Civil War. But you've got to keep in mind the context, which is that men going off to fight in the Civil War and some women covertly, uh, but a lot of them died. (laughs) It should be news to no one that when the men went away and a lot of them didn't come home, you had this man drain on the economy and on the workforce. So a lot of women started entering higher education. They started entering the workforce and just public life in general, which afforded them some financial agency that they didn't previously have.
3: Yeah. I mean, you start to have laws being enacted around the 1880s that radically allowed women to claim their own wages even when they were married, because for a long time they couldn't. Uh, yeah. Some states were starting to allow married women to even enter business partnerships and sign contracts, so you're starting to see uh, not only more job opportunities for you know respectable middle class, read white women outside the home. Uh, they're also starting to win a few financial rights here and there, and we see this um, really showcased in 1880 with uh, Matilda C. Wheels first women-run ad agency. The MC Wheel Agency opens.
2: Yeah, and she had moved to the U.S. from Germany in the 1870s with her husband, but he dies suddenly. It's very tragic. How am I going to keep myself afloat? How am I going to make money? Well, she quickly realizes how profitable it can be selling ad space in newspapers and magazines for products, being the go-between sort of the ad representative or account manager of ye old early days. And she and her friend and business partner, Meta Volkman, saw this advertising path as a terrific new job opportunity for women as copywriters or clerks, solicitors, commercial artists, uh, especially because at this point, like so many of the industries and careers that we talk about on the podcast,
3: it was too new to be gendered yet. Yeah, I mean that's the same thing that you see with uh computer science before we realized what a boom programming would be. Women were the original quote-unquote computers and programmers. Um and in early advertising, uh not only did you have a, a gender-free essentially environment, um but, but you also have what were called nostrums or the the tonics and cure-alls that were really the backbone Of the ad industry Uh, in post-Civil War time, they were a $70 million industry, which was no small potatoes. Yeah, I
2: mean, these ads for these tonics, basically, made up a third of American publishers' revenues. So I, I think that's a very interesting cycle. You know, you talk about today... Um, maybe negative images and advertising, sort of normalizing certain body types, for instance. Um, so apply that pattern and knowledge to uh, the ideas around these nostrums that, OK, well, we're going to run these ads. We make a lot of money, so we're going to run more. We're going to make even more money and on and on and on. And so people are going out and buying in huge droves these really ineffective, <laughs> quote unquote, medicines that were honestly, mostly alcohol. And because women were in charge of advertising so many of these products, and so many of these products were advertised to women, it was basically like kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge for women to get wasted. (laughs) Like it was definitely an early way for women to be like, I'm just going
3: to drink this to feel better. Leave mommy alone with her tincture. And since women... We're buying these tinctures and, uh, you know, a lot of the other cure-alls and even, say, maybe the first um, uh, underarm depilatory powders mm. that were being sold to women to cure, in quotes, their pit hair, essentially. Um, in the 1890s, this very young industry starts to recognize how getting a woman's point of view, so to speak, is really. Profitable because this is when they start to also realize how influential women were as buyers because they influenced obviously not only household purchases but also things that men themselves bought.
2: Yes, women swaying their husbands' opinions on things. And and you have, of course, different industries orbiting this burgeoning ad industry. Uh, for example, in the 1890s, in the early 1890s, you get Beatrice and Clara Tonneson, who started the first professional modeling agency. So they're early lady entrepreneurs providing
3: fresh-faced young women for advertisements. And in 1895, a woman named Kate Griswold becomes the publisher of the trade magazine Profitable Advertising. And it was highly influential at the time. And Griswold becoming publisher of this is, you know, noted in advertising histories as an example of the potential power that women did wield. Well, yeah, you
2: see a bunch of these trade magazines popping up. Just a year later, uh, Woman's World uh, described how great advertising was for women. And obviously, they didn't mean the ads themselves. They meant it as a profession. And they were one of several of these trade magazines that talked about what it took To be a good ad woman. Um, Basically, uh, an ad woman uh, had a great understanding of human character and human nature. They should have some literary skill and ideas. Uh, they have to be able to put themselves in the customer's shoes. I mean, this is nothing new to anyone today who's in advertising. You still need to have an understanding of psychology and human nature and the way to really market something to someone. Um, the article ended up getting reprinted four years later in 1900 because so many women had started being attracted to the job. They were curious about the job. They were writing into these trade magazines and the magazine was like, geez, will we publish a thing? A couple of years ago, I guess we'll reprint it. Um, but they were thought to be most successful in the job, women were, when they were capitalizing on gender norms rather than trying to act, dress, or write and pitch ideas like men.
3: Of course. I mean, this is the turn of the century. We don't want women, you know, emulating masculine values. Um, and it's also around that time in the turn of the century that the advertising industry not only is attracting some women into you know its workspace but also its marketing consumption as a lady thing. This is how ladies be shopping came to be because I mean the the advertising industry really sold going out and shopping as part of your feminine duty while your man is away earning the money You, as a woman, spend it to make your home, your kids, yourself, of course, look and feel good. So, really, spending money is a woman's job. And, oh, we still see that stereotype so much today. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you see the stereotype,
2: but you see plenty of people still embracing that division. You know?
3: I mean, you still see
2: plenty of people with the attitude of, like, yeah, women should just be shopping.
3: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, a Real Housewives of New York binge that I've been on lately, and one of the the couples is um, I don't know what the dude is. It doesn't even matter. All the men are footnotes in that show anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the the woman um, does not work, and they're like at a dinner, and she's the one commenting like, "Oh yeah, you make the money, so I can spend it." <laughs> I'm just cringing as i'm like buying the next episode on amazon <laughs> um but that was that was such a uh, i mean it, it makes sense that consumption was gendered but i guess i didn't realize if we're reading about this how explicit and strategic
2: it yeah, was yeah me too i didn't either i didn't realize that it was basically like a mandate
3: <laughs> but the thing is i mean it was a mandate to a certain class oh, for sure. of white women Um, because in terms of working class women, women of color, the advertising industry had no interest in reflecting them in their images. Why would they want to sell to them? Which, they aren't ideal.
2: Which is the same. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, if if you look at money as... Votes or, you know, money is the key to participation and representation. Advertisers are, of course, going to pitch to, um, that those, uh, advertisers are, of course, going to pitch to that more desirable demographic
3: of like young, wealthy, or middle-class consumers. Yeah. I mean, also, you got the fact of disposable income. Mm-hmm. But really, as we're going to see with theme number two, it's all about creating this myth of idealized white femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we get into the next stage of the industry around World War I, before, during, and after, this is when we really see the monetization of that female viewpoint, because leading up to World War One, advertisers are seeing women as really worthwhile to their business for three main reasons. Uh, they'd already figured out how influential they were on men's consumption. So, I mean, what a bargain. Um, they're also cheap. You know, the gender wage gap. Existed way back when. Um, and they bring the feminine point of view.
2: Yeah, well, it's funny that you you put it like that because one of the first uh, badass ladies in advertising was definitely not a shrinking violet. Uh, in 1911, the J. Walter Thompson agency, JWT, hired its first female copywriter and, frankly, rad feminist lady, Helen Lansdowne Resort, who... Ended up staffing an entire department with female copywriters. So she's actually responsible, it turns out. This is another tidbit I learned for the original, uh, like, sex sells concept. She uh, showed a man embracing a woman in an ad for Woodbury Soap, uh, accompanied by the headline, A Skin You Love to Touch. Was it the same ad or was it a different one that featured a naked lady for soap? There was, like, a really scandalous early ad for Soap that also featured, like, a nakedly kind of hunched over and facing away from the camera. It kind of looks like, are you you cold? You're probably
3: really cold. I don't know if that was also a – Or they caught her off guard. (laughs) Yeah, what? (laughs) Who let you in my house to sketch me for the past two
2: hours? (laughs) What? (laughs) Um, and so by 1918, just a couple years later, JWT's women's department, helmed by Resor, attracted
3: more than half of the agency's billings. And I don't have the exact number of accounts in front of me, but th- that meant that the staff of women in, like, the women's editorial department was doing um, far and away a bulk of the creative work in the agency, but were being paid less than the men who had far fewer accounts that they were managing. But again, like you said, the more things change, the more they say the same. And by the time Reesor makes it to the JWT board, she's incredibly successful. You see, you know, her star rising. But by that point, most women in the agency were secretaries. So you have some breakout stars like a Reesor, but it's not a universal story by any means. Yeah, one woman's success
2: at the top of corporate America does not translate to general Women's equality, which is something that, of course, we talk about today with anything in terms of women making it to the
3: C-suite. But if you look at how, you know, women in advertising were being reported on in, you know, the, the teen's. It's so strikingly different than the kind of headlines that we see today. So in 1912, first of all, you have the founding of, uh, Advertising Women of New York, which still exists and is still a highly influential group. Um, and the New York Evening Telegram reported, Women advertising managers now entrusted with the spending of $20 million a year. So you would probably think if you were a reader at that time that, hey, this new advertising business is really welcoming to women. Women are really, you know, busting down some doors, making making some cash.
2: Well, I mean, yeah. But the whole reason behind Oni's founding is that women weren't allowed in the all male advertising league.
3: Yeah. And, and again, I mean, there, that's, that's sort of the, um, the, the temptation of romanticizing this early history of advertising when, especially in the, you know, turn of the century era when it was relatively ungendered, although it feels like that lasted like a weekend. And then the guys came back and were like, wait a tick. Hold on. We just want your feminine <laughs> viewpoint. Here is less than what you deserve to earn. Um, but romanticize it because you do have, you know, these standout women who were nonetheless climbing the ranks here and there. So, in the 1920s, for instance, uh, Jane Martin was a stenographer turned ad whiz, whom Julianne Savolka, in that ad women book, describes as an outspoken feminist. She was single and loving it. And I mean, it seems like she just kind of bulldozed her way through. Yeah, she's known as the
2: ad woman who made ad women famous. So she worked her way up uh, through sheer awesomeness and, you know, hard work from advertising for a single manufacturer all the way up to agency work. And she did it all explicitly for economic independence because this is a lady who never married. Keep in mind at this time. Typically, uh, if you were a lady person in the uh, workforce, you were expected or in some cases forced to retire or resign once you got married. Well,
3: and this reminds me of our two-parter on librarians because yes. female librarianship was also shooting through the roof at this mm-hmm. time as well. And there was that line, it was kind of that, that crossroads if you were a woman in the workplace where you either get married and quit or work very, very little, or you have to stay single in order to move up. I mean, you can get in a Boston marriage. Yeah, yeah, Boston marriage being, you know, living with a lady friend, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, could just be a lady friend. Or it could be a lady friend. With benefits.
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, By 1925, though, when Martin did have to retire because of illness, she was earning 8 times the average woman's salary. So a 1924 survey, for instance, showed that female buyers of ad space were paid five grand a year while their male counterparts were earning about 7,500. Martin, at the end of her career, was earning 10,000 bucks.
3: Yeah, I have a feeling that uh, Jane Martin was not one to take less than she knew she was worth. And that's wonderful. I, I wish more people would demand what they're worth. Yeah, I mean, but I'm saying like that, talk about a radical act, probably. Yes. In 1925, it still feels like a radical act. <laughs> it, does. it does. And uh, around the same time, in 1926, Netta McGrath becomes the first female art director in the industry. And this is major because women were welcome as copywriters, space buyers, and researchers. But art and creative direction and account management was for the boys. And this is going to be a major topic for our second episode. Oh, yeah. That's right, because shall we say it a third time? The more things change, the more things stay the same. And another issue that we're going to revisit when we're talking about the
2: lay of the land today is something that harkens back to the 1930s because you've got a lot of women at the time working in many sectors of mass marketing. Um, They just weren't at perhaps those top ranks of art directors and creative directors.
3: Yeah. And so to to give an idea of the diversity of jobs that were available and that women were doing, you know, you do have things like copywriting, whether for agencies or department stores or mail order companies. Um, They oversaw publicity campaigns. They were merchandising consultants. Uh, You have commercial artists, product designers and photographers. But again, like there's that gatekeeping issue when it comes to where the bulk of the money is um, up at the top, and with that account management that is, I mean, really, I mean, just kind of reserved for the guys. So, while there were a good amount of women in the industry, in fact, by 1950, women made up a third of ad industry employees. The glass ceiling was very much in place. I mean, and, and you can hear how hopeful a lot of these women were with this industry that may, maybe they thought they could, you know, continue making inroads in, such as, uh, Christine Frederick, who was a consumer advocate and home economist and also one of the founders of the Advertising Women of New York who in 1938 said nothing is more proof that women are important in advertising than the plain fact that they've been in advertising in one capacity or another almost from the very beginning of the profession. So that was like just a given in 1938. Mm -hmm. And yet that quote unquote plain fact has been largely erased over time. And we are only now rediscovering that that was the case. So what happened? Because 1950, uh, you know, a third of ad industry employees, sisters are doing it for themselves. Mm -hmm. Some of them. Yeah. Well, we still have to get to theme number three. And we're going to do that when we come right back from a quick break.
0: Okay. so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, (laughs) then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh, my God. We've all been there. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free
0: zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. And that
2: third theme is something that we've kind of been hinting at this whole time, which is basically that the pigeonholing of women and gendered market segmentation ultimately proved to be this double-edged sword for women. That whole valuing of women for their female or feminine point of view um, and using women as tools to market to fellow women, I mean, it's great if, if it helps you get a job and it helps you get a paycheck. It's not so great if it
3: just further and further pigeonholes women in the industry. And here's the thing. A lot of these women in advertising, specifically uh, a Christine Frederick, who was, you know, both in advertising and was also a home economist. They really thought that they were improving women's lives through the types of ads that they were making because they were selling these conveniences. They were, you know, potentially like freeing women from the drudgery of chores that they had to do without the aid of all of these new Gizmos and such, not to mention that there were enough success stories like a Jane Martin that ambitious women considered advertising a place that they could go where they would not just get stuck in the secretarial pool. They could potentially, with their college education, climb their way out of the stenopool. pool. But what got women in the door was their perspective, that female point of view on gendered domesticity and some women like Helen Lansdowne Razor were able to climb the ladder above copywriter, of course. Um, I mean, you also have Jean Wade uh, Rindlaub, who started as a consumer department copywriter at BBDO and. She slayed at Lady Brands. Like, when she started out, she was uh, writing for Duff's Gingerbread, Marvelous Makeup, Energetic Shoes. Oh, Energetic. I just got it. Oh,
2: <laughs> it took you saying it for me to get
3: it. So, uh, listeners, Energetic is E-N-N-A. As in, like, as if it's someone's first name, and then Jetic G- J-E-T-T-I-C-K. Clever. Um, and then she graduated, though, to more established brands like General Mills, the United Fruit Company, um, and Campbell's Soup. And like Helen Lansdowne Razor, you see Ren Laum kind of noticing, like, okay, this female point of view, like, selling these women's products, that is something that we, you know, we as women have a corner on in this industry. So I'm going to capitalize this for all it's worth. So she savvily created women's research groups to get women's product impressions and branding input. And you see a lot of that like recreated, um, on Mad Men. Um, she also voiced Betty Crocker, which I did, did I know that Betty Crocker had a voice? Betty Crocker began as a radio personality. Mm. Oh, okay. And as part of that, she started the industry's first test kitchen. I mean, this woman Hmm. was quite the innovator. And as evidence of that, in 1944, she became the first woman elected vice president of BBDO. So there again, you have these instances of women here and there Mm -hmm. breaking through. But there's the catch. Right. The catch
2: being... You've got these go-getters, but they're selling domesticity, aproned baking. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Hashtag not all baking. But it was selling the very gendered identity of a woman being in her sphere at home, supporting the man while he went out and worked, which is ironic for someone like a Christine Frederick, who is one of the co-founders of Ani, uh, she was, here she was, this go-getter woman who wanted to pursue career success. Um, but she also knew that advertising to women and wives out there to get them to be consumers, it meant selling to a more conservative general public who were more comfortable with the idea of women staying at home, which led Frederick to focusing on Home economics, basically.
3: Yeah, it seems like Frederick really wanted to compensate for what she knew was her violation of, like, feminine gender norms by being this progressive professional woman, which was, like, those were politics that she didn't want to push. I mean, she was a relatively conservative woman. And it seems like her whole home economics spin on things, which was really hot at the time, um was sort of compensating for that. So her whole perspective on it was, like, Women, who cares that, you know, the workplace is not so welcoming of us because our homes can be treated like factories. We can systematize things. You can be your own assembly line. So you see, I mean, there's so much um, literature in advertisements these days of literally like teaching women how to wash their dishes and fold their clothes, et cetera, in more efficient ways. So from that perspective, you have a Christine Frederick and others being like, I'm not selling, you know, women up the river. Like, I'm making their lives better. I'm teaching them how to, you know, get spotless silverware in half the (sighs) time. You know, it's not like they, I mean, we also have to give these women, um, a little bit of, uh, I think, some of a pass for not having, like, the full scope of history <laughs> to look at, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe, like, a full understanding of, I don't know, like, intersectional feminism to realize, like, wait a minute, you're kind of digging a grave for us. Well,
2: they're busy reading all of those trade magazines about understanding human nature and putting themselves in consumers' shoes. I mean, but, I mean, women, women like Frederick or... Renlob were frankly a rare sight in the market or the economy in general. I mean, women having the ability to be these career focused individuals. Um, But, you know, like we've said, there still was that glass ceiling to contend with. In the industry itself, despite the fact
3: that the door was open to an extent, because here's the thing, the advertising industry was not and still is not insulated from its own messages that it's selling. So the same kind of essentially like female subordination and narrow and quote unquote acceptable gender roles that they are selling to women is translated to the workplace mm-hmm. to where all of these guys are like, ladies, you are terrific at selling to women. You know, this is also another like uh, through line that you see on Mad Men where, you know, Peggy, of course, is assigned like pantyhose and stuff like that. And she's like, really? OK, um, because they're like, no, ladies, this is what you're good at. You know, you stay in your corner. Um, You know, so they were I don't know, it's like it gets kind of meta at some point where it's like it almost feels like women accidentally sold themselves out. Yeah, because in fact, it's still a boys club at the top of the industry Uh, the advertising league for instance was all men's a lot of these professional organizations were all men hence the founding like you said of the advertising women of new york there was a noticeable gender wage gap for men and women who would be doing the same thing you have male executives reluctant to promote women beyond copywriting for female products. Um, You have women being denied access to um, leadership in the creative department and even down to the gendered language in job announcements uh, in the newspaper looking for ad men or salaried men. Rarely would you see advertisements from a like a JWT asking for ad women
2: Yeah. And and even back then, the women who did break through and climb up the ranks, they were perceived as being these geniuses of the industry, as as total outliers who were somehow different than the rest of the women around them.
3: And one thing in the background of all of this is the fact that, yeah, I mean, white women were having... A tough time of it, you know, busting through that glass ceiling if they wanted to. There were probably plenty of women who were cool with being secretaries and then getting married. That was a perfectly acceptable and desired path that a lot of women took back then. Um, But in no way could it have possibly been easier for not just women of color, but people of color. I mean, African-American men were a rare sight on Madison Avenue because of just basic media segregation and racist publishing policies. And this is something that Jason Chambers writes about in the book Madison Avenue and the Color Line African Americans and the Advertising Industry. Yeah. And so, you know, we mentioned
2: earlier all those trade magazines that were telling women how to be good ad women, ad people. Uh, and, and they advocated a lot of uh, the ability to put yourself in the consumer's shoes. But there was a basic flat out assumption that, you know, because white and male is the dominant and white and female is also something that happens in the ad industry, you can be white and female in the office. Uh But still, you're only sort of targeting other white women. So there was this idea that, like, how in the world could a black man at the office or a black woman at the office write copy or design an ad or a campaign that could possibly target the general population?
3: Oh, and the idea of a black male copywriter writing to appeal to white women. I mean, that would simply be inconceivable because of all of the racism and hypersexualization and like white dude fears around the relationship between, you know, the potential sexual threat, you know, that black men might pose to white women. So that translates even to jobs in the advertising industry. That is Mm -hmm. how like uh, how deeply embedded this kind of racism is, and initially advertising was small enough that it didn't attract a lot of pushback from the black community. Um, but of course, once you start seeing black owned ad agencies developing because black businesses could not buy advertising in white or quote unquote mainstream publications, a lot of times, um, their opportunities were, were limited, although, In their own ways, they were also selling idealized images of a middle class. Yeah, a middle class black family in order to counteract
2: so many of the prevailing racist stereotypes out there of black families as across the board being poor and unstable and missing a father, all of that stuff of showing the happy Norman Rockwell version of
3: family in the ad just black. Yeah, I mean, because consumer rights are part of full citizenship. Um, but then we get to double edged sword number two, because black enterprise both flourished and was hampered at the turn of the century because of segregation, uh, where you have white owned brands that could sell to black consumers, but not vice versa. So by 1945, though, the white ad industry begins paying more attention to the black market with the launch of ebony. Um, This also relates back to your episode on black newspapers and Ethel Payne, where we go into more detail about that. Um, But ebony really changed a lot. And advertisers, white advertisers, saw it as like, oh, wait, hold on. There's all this this money out there. There's. Look at look at this like premium publication targeted to black people. OK, we can have like blue chip advertisers in this in this magazine.
2: Yeah. And and the thing is, when you get to the 1970s, you've got these ad agencies that, again, are mostly run by white guys. And they're starting to realize that they should hire more women and African-American people uh but that's a lot due to affirmative action that's not them being like oh i should really get a diversity of viewpoints in my staff so i can uh, you know better serve my clients um and so basically that's where it stops it's not like there is some massive push
3: from the actual higher ups in these ad agencies to try to diversify and in the process of all of this you see you know some black agencies that are smaller and don't have as big of budgets being shut out because white-owned agencies are coming in, stealing business and stealing talent. Um, and within all of this, though, there are a couple of proud ladies that we want to highlight who were making their way through this career while facing double discrimination of, you know, not only being a woman, but being a woman of color. So in 1963, you have Caroline Jones, who was hired by JWT as its first African-American copywriter. And she later became the first female African-American vice president in a major agency still at JWT.
2: And early on in her career, uh, Jones was expected to focus on accounts that were geared toward black consumers, just in the same way that we've been talking about how women are expected to market to women. Well, black people are expected to market to other black people. But some of her campaigns for things like Campbell's Soup and KFC were actually taken national, although... Uh, I believe the imagery in those ads when they were taken national were changed to white families instead
3: of black families. Ugh. Yeah. Well, and then um, maybe because of that, in 1986, um, she rolls solo. She had already, I think, opened a couple of other agencies before. Um, but in 1986, she opens up Caroline Jones Incorporated and is very successful through that. Ten years prior, you have Barbara Proctor founding Proctor & Gardner Advertising, uh, which was the second largest black agency in the U.S. And Proctor is the first and only black woman
2: helming an agency until the late 80s. And she really had a social uplift mission with her work. She really understood how ad images could influence people's perceptions of the black community. And so she would not work for cigarette or alcohol companies
3: that targeted women and people of color. And speaking to the L.A. Times in 1992, Proctor said, I'm not nearly as successful as I would be if I were a white male. If I were a white male, I'd be among the Fortune 500 companies. I had hoped to nurture this company into a Leo Burnett. And for those of you outside the industry, Leo Burnett is one of the biggest agencies. So, I mean, she's calling it like it is Mm -hmm. right there. Um, but speaking of Leo Burnett, in 1976, the same year Barbara Proctor founds her advertising agency, Carol H. Williams becomes the first black female creative director at a major agency at Leo Burnett. And uh, this tagline that she came up with might ring a bell to... <laughs> deodorant fans?
0: <laughs> that doesn't make sense.
3: Uh, she came up with a whole strong enough for a man, but made for a woman, which was secret deodorants campaign for forever. Yeah. Do they still use that? I don't think so. It's
2: kind of like, that's how good some of these taglines are that marketers and advertisers came up with, because I literally still associate them with the brand. Like, I still think of uh, we love to fly in at shows for Delta, which I love to say uh, To my mother, because she is a Delta flight attendant and it doesn't show. <laughs> uh, love you, mom. But anyway, according to ad women author Julianne Savolka, what these three women that we just mentioned have in common is that they knew when to pack up and head out, when to leave the agencies that they were in. And take things entrepreneurial.
3: Yeah, I mean, it seems like they, you know, recognize like, okay, I've hit the ceiling or I'm about to hit the ceiling. Mm -hmm. So I've just got to do this for myself because all these white dudes at the top have no interest in promoting me. You know, they don't want me going to their all male clubs. Um, I mean, because there were also All male clubs, you say, because <laughs> <laughs> there were the I mean, and I want to say that one still existed, like quite recently. But there are these like men's only clubs mm-hmm. where advertisers would take clients, you know, to do their like schmoozing and wheeling and dealing. Yeah. Um, and like this, yeah, that is, that is the world we're, we're in. So no surprise. If you are someone as talented as, say, like a Carol H. Williams, yeah, you might as well just like make your own paper. Um, and a lot of this really explains the hot mess that the ad industry finds itself in today with a lot of these same issues still persisting. Has it gotten better? Yes, are more women, even more women in the advertising industry. Yes, and there are more women in leadership positions, but there are still very familiar roadblocks for women, especially, like you said, um, in the creative department.
0: Okay. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports.
3: And we're going to talk about all of that in our next episode, part two. So in the meantime, I know that we have a lot of folks in the industry listening to this, um, and I would love to hear your thoughts about this Um, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And I realized that, you know, we just cited a limited list of these trailblazers in the ad industry. So if there are rad women that we did not mention that we should shout out, please also let us know. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you right now.
2: Okay, well, we've got a set of letters here about our saggy boob science episode. This one's from Ashley. She says, hi, ladies. Just listened to your podcast on boob sagging, and it made me so angry and a little self-conscious. Not at you but at the ridiculous standards we are held to. I'm a 36H, and according to the TOSIS Scale, I've got some grade 2 sagging going on. My boobs have never been perky. They are so heavy that I have large knots in my back that I have to constantly get worked out by massage therapists and chiropractors. I've never before expected them to defy gravity and not sag. In fact, I'd be super surprised if they didn't sag. Despite this, hearing about this scale made me feel abnormal, even though you were pretty adamantly calling it out for its ridiculousness. I wish people didn't find it necessary to quantify perceived problems with women's bodies. Thanks for the great show. Keep it up. I really look up to you as feminist role models. Well, thanks, Ashley. And I'm glad you're in agreement about how silly the, uh, what do we call it, like the Tosa Circus tightrope was? Yeah. The TOSIS tightrope, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: That makes more sense. Alliteration. Okay. So I've got a letter here from Sharon also about our ptosis episode. And she writes, first, I have two kids. And despite returning to my pre-pregnancy weight, my boobs are a cup size bigger. And let's just say no longer self-supporting. But she says, the truth is my husband actually likes sagging boobs better than he did my perfect perky ones. Second, you talked a lot about the ligaments. I felt a lump in my breast and brought it to the attention of my midwife. She scheduled a mammogram and an ultrasound, and it turns out they said it was just that I have firm ligaments. And I think she used the word tough a few times. And it makes me feel like a badass in some ways. Lastly, my Siri occasionally comes on for no reason when listening to the podcast and attempts to search for something the host said. It tried to search a sentence that included boob science and told me it couldn't find anything. Well, if that doesn't sum up the lack of research, then I don't know what does. Well, thanks, Sharon, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about the history of women in advertising, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.